0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the government says the small boat crisis is a priority. But what's really happening at sea?
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
1: a 20-year-old student from Iraq, who we're calling Amjad, found himself in trouble. Deadly violence had broken out in his neighbourhood, and he was forced to flee.
3: I didn't feel safe, because I like freedom of speech.
1: It's not safe for him to share his whole story publicly, but Amjad's circumstances were dangerous,
3: and he was running out of options. It is dramatic when you leave that land. I think it would have a same feeling that you lose your mother. He didn't want to leave, but with the help of his nephew, he was put in touch with people smugglers
1: who for around six thousand dollars said that they would take him to safety.
3: I expected that would be easy to get a safe place, but that was really difficult and I didn't plan to go to UK specifically, but you know this is what the the smugglers is that that they want to take you to.
1: There were days of walking without food or water. Amjad is young, he's slight, and he's not, as he says, a tough guy. Eventually, he arrived in Dunkirk. It was chaotic, and he was scared. Under the cover of darkness, he and 22 boys and men were told to clamber aboard an inflatable dinghy and push off into the Channel, one of the busiest stretches of water in the world.
3: They just told us that it's gonna take one hour to two hour. But after six hours, we're still in the middle of the sea and uh, run out of fuel. The feeling is indescribable. You don't know what to do. A lot of water is coming to your boat. We have to throw the water out of the boat. Uh, you cannot even feel your fingers, your legs. You're just gonna think about death. Everyone
1: was terrified. As the only one on board who spoke English, it fell on
3: Amjad to call
1: 999 again and again.
3: Sir, we are still waiting. There is no one, no one is coming. Please try to send someone.
2: Please, please, please.
1: But the UK Coast Guard told him that he was not in their waters and that he should call the French. The tension on the boat was escalating. Amjad made calls to the French authorities and then to the British authorities, hoping that someone would send search and rescue. He couldn't believe that they would be left to die.
3: When the 999 is talking, they said, call to French, and when the French is uh, talking, they said, call to United Kingdom. The both of them is laughing at us.
1: Frustrated and frightened, he found a number for the charity Utopia 56.
3: When I realised uh, it doesn't get to work, I, you know, I just... Remember, Utopia, and I just called them. And fortunately, when I called them, they just promised us that the uh, rescue boats will, will be save us in, like, 40 minutes. And uh, they, they just did it.
1: Utopia 56 urgently scrambled and got on the phones. Their pressure meant that a French rescue boat did arrive. They were rescued and taken back to France.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you, man, thank you, man, thank you
1: everyone on the boat that day survived. They were lucky. But four days later, another small boat full of people attempted the same crossing.
3: It's the deadliest accident since the channel became a hub for migrants to reach England from France. 27 migrants drowned after that inflatable boat lost air and took on water.
1: Now, an Observer investigation has revealed that 19 other distress calls were made that November by small boats needing urgent help in the channel. Campaigners say they were effectively ignored, ultimately leading to the night in which at least 27 people tragically died in the sea. Could it have been avoided? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, did the UK Coast Guard Ignore desperate calls for help. Eleanor Rose, you're a journalist with Liberty Investigates, and you've been working on this story for The Observer. We've just heard from Amjib, who attempted the crossing from France to England in a small boat in November 2021. Can you put into context the phenomenon of small boat
4: crossings and when they really began? If we go back to 2014, the UK started working really hard to strengthen its security at the French-UK border and put in place immigration controls in, in various different ports, France, the Netherlands. And so it therefore became far more difficult to enter the UK by train or lorry, which is what had been happening previously. And you began to see small boats arriving in pretty small numbers on the UK shores down in Kent. So we've heard from frontline volunteers in the course of this investigation in that very early period, finding abandoned vessels on the beach or kind of seeing a glimpse of people going up the cliffs and camping in the woods. It was a time when there was very little infrastructure in place to stop them doing that. By 2018, it was started increasing really noticeably. And the then Home Secretary Sajid Javid declared them a major incident.
1: And what about a sense of scale? How many people are estimated to have crossed the 20 or so miles of the channel in this way? And when did small boat crossings peak?
4: So the latest figures that I've seen show nearly 90,000 people have made that journey in the past five years. And they've been rising pretty steadily. About 45,000 of them crossed last year in 2022.
1: Anna, do we know how many boats manage to arrive safely and what proportion of them will need help?
4: That's really impossible to say, but we know that the number arriving unaided is nearly nothing now because the UK government has set up all kinds of surveillance in the Channel. It's one of the most surveilled stretches of water in the world. So it shouldn't be the case that rescuers, coast guard, home office is unaware of a boat coming over. And that operations have become a lot more organised to meet boats earlier.
1: Can you give me a sense of what makes the route so dangerous?
4: These vessels are mostly just dinghies. They're overloaded. So obviously traffickers with a business model packing 20, 40 people onto what's just an inflatable boat with a potentially dodgy motor. Traffickers don't always ensure there's enough fuel for the journey. There sometimes aren't enough life jackets. And even when there are, they could be good for nothing, flimsy things. And then the Dover Strait is the world's busiest shipping lane.
5: The Channel is the busiest shipping lane in the world. It's perilous, and here's why. As the boat continues its slow journey, a 400-foot-long tanker approaches at speed. If there's a collision, it would be catastrophic for everyone on the dinghy. The big ship might not even notice.
4: Contrary maybe to public belief, we've seen loads of evidence of women, children, and babies on board.
3: Baby! Don't like to jungle! No milk, no water, no leaf! Problem, problem! Is your little, can I ask you, madam? Is your
0: little baby, baby on board? Baby, come. baby. Your baby's on the boat. Okay, well, you better go with
1: her then, yeah? Under international law, what responsibility does the UK have to rescue people in the Channel?
4: So, the UK signatory to various international conventions about this, which requires states to, for example, set up coordination centres to respond to vessels in distress, to render assistance to any person found at sea in danger of being lost. It doesn't matter, for example, that a call comes in from just the other side into the French part of the channel. The state receiving a report should take initial responsibility for it and cooperate with the search and rescue organisations of other states to make sure those people get found and rescued.
1: So there is a legal responsibility on both the UK and on France?
4: Absolutely, yeah. If there's some doubt for whatever reason about who should respond... Basically, the framework is that they should cooperate. In practice, what appears to be happening, and what authorities both sides of the channel have been accused of, is passing the buck between them. So something appears to be really going wrong. Aaron
1: Waller-Walker, you've worked alongside Eleanor and the Observers Mark Townsend on this complicated investigation into how 27 people could lose their lives on what is one of the most surveyed stretches of water in the world. What do we know about what happened on the night of 24th of November 2021?
5: So what we know from French Coast Guard logs disclosed to lawyers is that a dinghy set off carrying 34 men, women and children and capsized in the middle of the channel. That night, passengers repeatedly called both the French and UK authorities for help and both stand accused of passing the buck between them. French logs suggest that the boat overturned at 3am and some people drowned immediately. Others succumbed to the cold. The boat was only found the following afternoon by a private vessel who saw bodies in the water, and then a mayday call was issued. And so far, 27 bodies have been recovered.
1: Well, as horrific as that case is, Your investigation has found that it's not the only time that distress calls have seemingly been ignored by the authorities.
5: Exactly. November was a month of record crossings. There were days when uh, the number of boats which crossed exceeded 30, which was at that point unprecedented. What we've identified is that in the three weeks leading up to the tragedy, there are at least 19 incidents where a small boat in distress was reported to the Coast Guard, but appears to have been left adrift. In one particularly distressing incident, a woman called Hampshire Police um, on the afternoon of the 3rd of November. She mentioned through a translator that her brother was crossing in a small boat that day and something awful had happened. 20 minutes earlier, smugglers alleged to be on board were pushing people into the sea and fighting for their lives in the busiest shipping lane in the world. Despite that being the dictionary definition of a distress incident, And that would require search and rescue action to be commenced without delay. It appears that nothing took place until three hours later.
1: It's just so bleak. Aaron, how many distress calls could you see had been made in the month of November that you have the logs for?
5: On the busiest days, the Coast Guard would receive, you know, between 80 and 100 reports. And that could relate to around between 20 to 30 boats being recovered. Oh, wow. So... Yeah, pretty significant numbers.
1: Aaron, what is the process here? What should happen when a distress call like that is made?
5: So, because of the intrinsic vulnerability of small boats, you know, they're often overcrowded, not seaworthy, no maritime experience. They're all considered to be automatically in grave and imminent danger and requiring immediate assistance. That's what's known as a distress phase incident under the Search and Rescue Convention, 1979. So. There's various steps that Coast Guards will then need to undertake to respond to that appropriately. They need to ascertain the position, i.e. find out where the boat is, and then send either an RNLI rescue boat or a Border Force cutter. And they can also send helicopters and additional assets, depending on what the situation is. If there's people in the water, then that's particularly serious. You know, If the boat's sinking, you'd expect to see a really prompt response.
1: And how difficult is it for people to be found and rescued once they get into
5: trouble? I think every case is different based on a few factors. But let's say it's people on the boat themselves making a 999 call. The Coast Guard then has to try and determine where that boat is. That might be done through using GPS on the phones, which aren't typically designed for maritime travel. So there can be challenges there in terms of getting accurate coordinates from the people to know where the boat is. We've spoken to people who were feeling hugely seasick and unable to follow the instructions as to how to identify on their phone what their coordinates are and send those to the Coast Guard. And they resorted to you know trying to describe passing ships in order to give the Coast Guard an idea of where they were that way. You have to also consider the fact that you've, on some nights, got only two people recorded as being in the Dover operations room, receiving vast numbers of reports
1: Just two people on duty? I mean, it doesn't sound quite enough, does it? Aaron, what else did you find?
5: I would describe what we've discovered as a clear pattern where an overwhelmed Coast Guard appears to have essentially left small boats adrift after they were reported to them. Um, A former senior Coast Guard source reviewing the records that we obtained said that the operations are largely being conducted by junior staff with very little apparent leadership, and that the close supervision required to prevent loss of life is not evident. And from a legal position, we've been told that by failing to launch rescues in response to these distress calls, the UK appears to be in breach of international law. Under international law, states have an obligation to rescue anyone who's imperiled at sea. There are 440 people we've identified who are ultimately unaccounted for. And in the absence of the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency providing an explanation as to what happened in these cases, it's unclear that all have survived.
1: So that's hundreds of people where we can't say definitively if they were rescued or if they managed to reach the shore safely, which is pretty shocking. Is what's going wrong here a question of resource and funding?
5: So, yeah, it's a really good question. This all goes back to 2013 when there was the last major restructure of the Coast Guard amid what was at the time austerity, reducing the number of Coast Guard centres across the country, but having them linked in a way that they could support each other remotely. It was thought that with a much reduced workforce, they would be able to respond to incidents and that they could also forecast busy periods of time ahead and have enough staff accordingly. The problem with kind of basing things on previous forecasts is that The following years have obviously proven to be busier and busier with channel crossings. The internal records we've seen also forecast November as being a month of low to medium busyness, when in reality it was the highest number of crossings to date.
1: And what have the Coast Guard and the UK government had to say in response to your reporting?
5: So while the investigations are ongoing, the Coast Guard agency says that it would be inappropriate to comment on our findings. Uh, Meanwhile, the Home Office has reiterated that its teams are available 365 days a year to respond to every small boat incident encountered in the channel.
1: Aaron, in June 2022, the UK government announced that an inquiry would be held into the tragedy in which those 27 people lost their lives. What has it set out to do and What are the bereaved families hoping for?
5: With regards to the 24th of November tragedy, the first step of the British investigation of the incident is due to be published this summer. Bereaved families have been particularly concerned about the process of this investigation as more than a year after the initial tragedy, they hadn't been contacted. The families desire a full public inquiry, which would be the highest level of scrutiny. And that would determine whether, you know, the actions or the lack of actions by British agencies involved in the search and rescue mission on the twenty-fourth of November resulted in their family members' rights being breached.
1: And what's happened since that tragedy? Have lessons been learnt?
5: There does appear to have been some positive changes. They've made changes to some of their internal guidance, and they've also hired emergency call handlers given basic training in order to handle overwhelming influxes of distress calls on particular dates. And they've also appeared to have tightened up the guidance for how to respond to these incidents. But obviously, there's been further tragedies since that one. On the 14th of December last year, four people died when a boat started to sink in the channel, and 31 other people were recovered by fishermen who happened to be close by. They
2: have a problem, please help. We have a children and family in a boat, uh, water coming and they, they don't have anything for
5: it. Additionally, on the 2nd of January this year, the French Coast Guard accused the British of ab- abandoning a dinghy carrying 38 people. It crossed into UK waters, according to a Coast Guard log obtained by the NGO Alarm Phone, and... The British Border Force Cutter Typhoon was on scene nearby, but rather than rescuing it when the boat's engine died, it appears to have been allowed to have drifted back into French waters where it was eventually rescued hours later by a French vessel.
1: Coming up, why the government's tough talk isn't stopping the boats.
4: arrived on the South Coast this year alone. Many of them facilitated by criminal gangs, some of them actual members of criminal gangs. So let's stop pretending that they are all refugees in distress. The whole country knows that that is not true.
1: Eleanor, the political rhetoric in the UK seems obsessed with the legal status of people making these journeys and whether the government considers them to be genuine asylum seekers or economic migrants. Does that have any bearing on the responsibility we have towards the lives or safety of people trying to reach the UK in that way?
4: It doesn't have any bearing at all. So under international conventions, states are responsible for search and rescue regardless of the circumstances. So That's regardless of who they are or why they're there. That's why if you call for help after you've gotten a kind of pleasure craft and gone on on a trip around the coast with no experience and run into trouble, you're not going to be judged in the moment of whether you're worthy of rescue. Someone's just going to come and rescue you if it's safe to do so. And nationality is, of course, also irrelevant. The former Home Secretary
1: Priti Patel and the current Home Secretary Suela Bravman have made a huge show of promising to get what they call the small boat situation under some kind of control. Now, they've proposed ever more extreme ideas from putting wave machines on beaches to push boats back to promising to send all people making these journeys on a one-way ticket to Rwanda. Have any of these proposed measures made Any difference to what we're seeing with people making journeys on these boats?
4: In short, no. The British government's proposal amount basically to banning any kind of illegal immigration and saying effectively, there's never an excuse for turning up here illegally. Experts and campaigners say there's no evidence that the measures provide a deterrent. And it's not just lefties, quote unquote, saying that. Matthew Ryderoth, the Permanent Secretary to the Home Office, wrote in a letter last year there was no evidence that the Rwanda scheme would stop people coming. And uh, MP Diana Johnson, chair of the Home Affairs Committee, said it appears to have gone unnoticed by migrants. People in places where human rights are not respected are desperately, they do put their lives in the hand of traffickers, sometimes not even knowing their end destination. And uh, whatever we do, some will come to the UK because they have family here or they speak English or for any other kind of range of reasons.
1: And in the meantime, has there been any sort of crackdown on the traffickers and the smugglers who are profiting from sending desperate people on these very dangerous journeys?
4: When we approached the Home Office about our investigation, it said the UK-France Joint Intelligence cell has dismantled 76 organised crime groups since it Began in July 2020. I guess, though, that the truth may always remain that there is a demand for trafficking. It's an opportunity for people to make money, and transnational crime syndicates are incredibly powerful things.
1: And what do the experts you've spoken to say is needed or could be done to bring that number of small boat crossings down or to eradicate it completely?
4: What we hear is about creating more safe routes. And this is the advice that seems to be really difficult for this government to hear. According to a real range of experts on this, there's just no magic bullet to stop illegal migration. It's really about doing the hard work of providing aid to countries where there's a need and where there's instability so that people don't need to flee. Experts and campaigners point to the fact that, for example, only 22 Afghans were reported as having been granted safe travel here by the Afghan Resettlement Scheme. We've been told providing better family reunion routes, functioning resettlement schemes and humanitarian travel documents would help prevent these perilous crossings, save lives. It sort of remains that unless you're a Ukrainian refugee or from Hong Kong, it's currently almost impossible to travel to the UK on a safe, regulated route. The Ukraine Visa Scheme, which offers a safe, place to people fleeing the war in that country has issued 227,000 permits to Ukrainians last year alone. That's the only safe passage scheme set by campaigners and experts really to be working. So one of the questions we could ask is why can we only help Ukrainians? Why aren't there any well-functioning systems for other people from Eritrea or Sudan or Syria to seek refuge? Amjad, as
1: you've told us, your attempt to cross the channel was really harrowing. Can you tell me about what happened when the rescue boat did finally arrive?
3: At the first, day, they throwed us a rope, and then, then they tried to, like, pulling us over. They they helped us to, to get in their boat. They just rescued us, and they let us go. I got sick. I just asked them for an ambulance. They told us, you cannot have it. It's your problem. Then what happened next? I just stayed in France, like in in Dunkirk, like for 12 days, and then I left it. I realised that it doesn't going to work, then I went back to another safe place. I'm in a safe place right now in Europe.
1: Amjad, you don't want to say where you are for your safety, but you did decide that it was too dangerous to attempt another crossing to the UK. Now, of course, those 27 people died in the Channel just days after you tried to make your journey. How did that impact on what you did next?
3: That night that those people died, I just saw a million notifications coming to my phone. I told them that I'm safe, do not worry. When I heard about that disaster, I just decided I cannot try more and I cannot put my life in danger. Do you you think about it at all? I want to be honest, I'm trying in here to build my future to not think about those things that had happened. I don't want to think about it. I just want to build my future. Amjad, thank you so much. You're welcome. And also, I want to thank you all for giving me a chance to tell my story.
1: That was Amjad and journalists Eleanor Rose and Aaron Wallawalker. My thanks to all of them and to The Observer's Mark Townsend. To read their investigation titled Horror Beyond Words... How channel distress calls were ignored 19 times before 2021 disaster. Head over to TheGuardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Eli Block, Klitsia Sala, and Alex Atak. Sound design is by Adam Bransbury, and the executive producer was Hummer Halili. We'll be back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.